This morning we're continuing the Gospel of Mark, and we've had all kinds of illnesses on the news, all kinds of sickness. People have become internet doctors, and they've researched all kinds of things. Are any of you familiar with this illness? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've seen it before. Last year, I had a really bad case of new caritis. Have you gotten this bug? It's not particularly dangerous to your health. There are no physical symptoms. The doctor can't prescribe anything for it. But it starts when you begin thinking that you need a new car. Maybe your current car is getting older, a little rust around the edges, a few dents and dings. The motor just isn't as peppy as it once was. Or maybe a new model caught your eye and you're no longer happy with your current car. You think you really deserve a new car. You'd be so much happier with a new car. Everyone else would be better off if you had a new car too. The antidote, the cure, is being thankful for the car you already have and renewing your commitment to keeping it going, keeping it strong. I hope you can make the short jump to today's message about God's marriage plan. So this morning in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus addresses the question, when is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? His answer was surprising for the immediate audience. Divorce was not an easy topic to talk about then or today. Broken marriages... Broken promises are painful. Families are split apart. Friends may be lost when relationships become awkward. If you have been divorced or affected by divorce, I am truly sorry for your suffering. And I'm not here to make you feel worse. I'm not here. It's not my desire to make you feel guilty about the past. As always, on Sunday mornings, when we come together, my goal is expository preaching which means opening up God's Word, reading it to you, explaining what it means, and then talking about present applications for our lives today. It had a meaning to the original audience. It has a meaning to us today. We don't get to change its meaning and say, well, that was for old days, this is for new days. We have to understand what it means. And then... How can we apply it? And that takes the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit in lives of unbelievers. We can't read God's Word and understand it without the Holy Spirit being at work. So in a moment, we're going to pray before we read Scripture. We want to bathe our whole worship service in prayer because we want the Holy Spirit here helping us to understand, helping us to apply it to our hardened hearts, to our minds that are just closed off to anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. Our response when we hear God's word should be to have a better understanding of not only what it says, but to have a biblical worldview. Sometimes it's going to require repentance, and always God is asking for obedience to his will and to his word. So as we continue this series, The Crown and the Cross, 
in the Gospel of Mark. We're past the halfway point. The first half of the book was all about Jesus as Messiah. He was revealing himself, and he is the one worthy of wearing the crown. Except so many times he would say, don't tell anyone who I am. As the disciples started to get it, he quelled that, he quieted that, because he knew that the people wanted to make him king right then and there. And this is about a spiritual kingdom for his time, and it's about a lasting kingdom for eternity. Once we reach chapter 8, halfway through, we shifted gears, and it's about the cross. Jesus started talking to his disciples. He revealed that his actual mission was to suffer and die for our sins and then be raised again. He's told the disciples twice already, and he will continue to tell them in a very short-term prophecy, because this is going to happen in just a matter of weeks, that this is going to occur. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by his own people and then die on the cross and be raised again. And the disciples wanted nothing of that. They wanted to see him sitting on the throne in Jerusalem just like David. And they thought they were going to be his court officers. They were going to be the ones surrounding him, the ones helping rule the kingdom. They didn't want to hear about death and suffering. Jesus is now preparing his disciples for what lay ahead. And he's also preparing you and I as disciples, as followers of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to really follow him? What does it mean to walk in his steps? So two weeks ago, we, we had a Father's Day message last week. Two weeks ago in chapter 9, Jesus was teaching about the right attitudes and the need for personal purity in ministry. And today as we begin, begin chapter 10, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees. This has happened before. They're the pious religious leaders, and they're looking to trap Jesus. They're looking to discredit his ministry, to get people to stop listening to him, because he's teaching things that go against what they say. He's making them look bad, because he said, you've heard it said this way, but here's what God says. They don't like that. Our parallel passages this morning are in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. And if you want to turn to Mark 10, you can be ready. If you have post-its or something you want to put in Matthew 18 and Luke 19, you can do that as well. But let's pray and ask God's blessing on our message this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can be together on this beautiful summer day. Thank you for the long evenings, for the ability to enjoy being outdoors, just the blessings of the place where you've placed us here in western New York to be able to enjoy beautiful summer seasons. And Lord, I thank you for each one who has chosen to be here with us this morning. For those that are watching from home, for those that may be watching later, Lord, we just ask your blessing as we look into your word, as we read the words of your son, Jesus Christ, as he spoke them here on earth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through it and then also giving us instructions, how we can have peace with you, how we can have a relationship with you, how we can have our sins forgiven, and most of all, how we can please you with our lives as we seek to obey your Son and to obey your word. Lord, I ask that your Spirit would touch our hearts, our hardened hearts, our minds, 
that we would hear your word and that we would be doers of what we hear. That we would change our view of the world, that we would change the way we think, the way we act, the way we speak as a result of hearing your word this morning. Lord, I ask your blessing on all that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen. Excuse me. If I had a mute button, I would do that every time I take a drink or cough, but I don't have that. Well, I kind of do, but anyway. All right, here we go. Mark 10. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 first, and then we're going to read the last couple of verses a little bit later. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. We see, first of all, that Jesus and the disciples have moved down onto, into Judea, and they're out past the Jordan River. And as usual, he's teaching the crowds who gather to hear him. Just about everywhere he goes, people have heard about his miracles, they've heard about his teaching, and people show up in numbers to hear him. What's, <clears throat> excuse me, what's specific about this area is he is in the Jordan, out past the Jordan River. He's in Judea. He's getting closer to Jerusalem, which is his final destination. And what happened out in the Jordan River? That's where John the Baptist baptized people. Out past the Jordan River in that wilderness area is where John had his ministry, where he called people to repentance He called them to be baptized, to be ready, because the kingdom of God was being revealed. And he said, the Messiah is coming. And John introduced Jesus. Here he comes. There he is. The Lamb of God is here. And John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. This is the first time that Jesus is back in that place. And it's possible that that's why the Pharisees attacked Jesus in this particular area. Because John preached about divorce. And he told Herodias that she was wrong to divorce her husband and marry King Herod. And she was mad about that. Herod had John thrown in jail. And as we saw back in chapter 6, eventually John was beheaded for preaching and speaking out against divorce. So is that the reason the Pharisees picked this time and this place? Possibly, there still was Herod, there still was Herodias, and if Jesus made this same kind of proclamation, 
maybe the Pharisees are thinking, we're going to get him. Jesus is going to get thrown in jail, and maybe we can get him beheaded just like John was. He was another troublemaker. He was preaching against our traditions and our customs. Maybe we can get rid of Jesus this way. Mark tells us, as opposed to the other Gospels, that the reason the Pharisees were asking these questions was not because they wanted to learn more, not because they just wondered what Jesus thought about this particular topic, but it says they wanted to test him. They wanted to get him into trouble. They wanted to discredit him to show that he didn't follow their traditions or even the teachings of the accepted rabbis. And the question was this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Listen to that question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice what the question is not. Is divorce okay? It's specifically, can a man divorce his wife? And there were two Jewish schools of thought at this time. The school of the Rabbi Shammai said, a man may only divorce his wife if he found unchastity in her. For example, the bride coming to the wedding was not a virgin, and that was found out afterwards. Or that she had sexual relations with someone other than her husband after being married. Another rabbi named Hillel said that a man may divorce his wife if she displeased him. And that included spoiling his favorite dish, burning dinner. That's it. You're out of here. She's no longer favorable to me. In other words, he could divorce her for absolutely any reason. And the assumption was for both that the man was now free to marry another woman. Neither of these schools, neither of these rabbis, none of the traditions gave permission for a woman to divorce her husband on any grounds, similar or anything else. And the Jews and the Jewish laws agreed that divorce was permissible by the man. It was just a question of, is it for anything or is it specifically for sexual immorality? I'm looking to see if we have kids in the room today. We have a couple young people, so talk to your parents more about this later. But this is God's Word, and we're going to talk about what God's Word says. I'm not going to get into details, though. So what's Jesus' response? In typical Jesus fashion, he answers a question with a question. He turns it around on them and says, what? Did Moses command you? In other words, what does God's law say about divorce? What does God say? I know you have your rabbis and you have your different schools, and if you wanted a divorce for a certain reason, you'd probably go to the, a specific rabbi because he was going to agree with your cause. What does God's word say? And Jesus gives us an example of analogia scriptura. I didn't put that on the screen. Analogia Scriptura, which means Scripture rightly interprets Scripture. This is part of our hermeneutic, part of how we understand God's Word. Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't go outside of Scripture to say, what does this mean? 
We say, are there other passages that talk about this so that we can better understand this? It doesn't really matter what the rabbis say. What does God say? That's Jesus' answer. And the Pharisees answered what God said. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And they got this from Deuteronomy chapter 24. But instead of referring to that Deuteronomy passage that the Pharisees mentioned, Jesus goes back to the very beginning. And he reminds them of God's original message, God's original marriage plan in Genesis 2. And Dorothy read that for us earlier. God established marriage at the very beginning of time. He created male and female, two sexes. According to God, there are no in-betweens in sexuality. There are no other biblical options. There are no other personal choices about who we think we are, who we say we are. There's male and there's female. That's what God's Word says. That's God's creation. We can think whatever we want. We can say whatever we want. We can declare anything we want. But we can't put those things above what God's Word says. This is what God said. This is what God planned, what God designed. I'm not hating anybody. I'm not saying anything other than this is what God's Word says. We have to interpret reality through the lens of God's Word. That's called a biblical worldview. Otherwise, what's my worldview? My own head. And that's a mess. You know what's even messier than my head? My heart. Scripture tells us that our heart is wicked and it's deceptive. And our brains play tricks on us all the time to make us think that we're smarter, we're better, we're good-looking, all kinds of things. It tells us things to protect ourselves because we don't want to get hurt. So even when we hear something, we twist it so that it matches what I want reality to be. And the Bible calls all of that sin. It's the effects of sin on our heads, on our hearts. So when you say, I just feel like this is right, you can feel whatever you want. This is what's right. This is what's true. This is God's word. And it doesn't make me hateful. It just makes me a proclaimer of God's word. His design was for a man and a woman to come together. Not two men, not two women, not people who decide what they're going to be today or tomorrow. And his design was for that man and that woman to leave behind their families and to hold fast to their spouse, to become a new family, just as Bradley and Hannah did. They are a new entity. It doesn't mean that they hate their families, but mom and dad no longer get to tell them what to do. They hold fast to each other. They can go to them for advice and help, but they are now a new family. They're a new unit. And they become one physically. They become one as a family. They become one physically. They are now one in the sight of God. 
And because God is the one who designed marriage and the one who joins people together, Scripture says man should not separate them because they've been joined by God. In Ephesians 5.32, the Apostle Paul called this a profound mystery, and it was revealing the beautiful symbol of Christ and the church. Just as a husband unconditionally, sacrificially loves his wife for his whole life, even so Jesus Christ sacrificially, unconditionally loves his bride, the church. Even to the point of dying on the cross, he gave up everything so that we could live, so that we could have a relationship with him. And scripture tells us that in response, the bride who is to love, cherish, respect, and honor her husband for her whole life is the calling of us, the church. Because Jesus died on the cross for me, I'm willing to do anything for him. I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to follow his lead. He is the one in charge. He's my Lord and my Savior. And that picture of marriage is a picture of God's love for his people. He did it in the Old Testament over and over again. We saw God talking about Israel as his bride. And in the New Testament, we see him talking about the church as his new bride including Jews, including Gentiles. It's now everybody. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ are the bride. And we look forward to a wedding celebration in heaven. Are you looking forward to that? Do you have your robe ready? It's the robe of righteousness. Jesus' death on the cross is what makes me ready for that wedding. The invitation goes out to everyone but only those who accept the invitation and say, I'm coming and I'm going to wear this robe. That's the only way that I can be acceptable in heaven to God through Christ's forgiveness. God's design, not man's design. Marriage was created by God. And Jesus points out that this intimacy, the permanency of the marriage relationship, because it's a picture of what God shows to us. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't get rid of us when we disobey him. He calls us to repentance. He calls us back again and again. What God has joined together, let not man separate. In Jesus' answer, he also said that Moses' law regarding divorce was because of the hardness or the sinfulness of the hearts. This certificate of divorce that a man presented to his wife, kept her from being abused. It kept her from becoming an outcast, left alone, destitute, with no future. So yes, God permitted it, and he said specifically what the guidelines were. It was for sexual immorality, but she was protected by this certificate. She wasn't just cast aside and no longer part of society. In doing that, God was not encouraging divorce. He wasn't approving of it. He was restraining it, making it more difficult for men to just easily dismiss their wives for any reason, just so that they could move on to someone new. And notice, all of this talk has been just about men dismissing their wives. 
So now the disciples have some questions. Back in Mark, verse 10 of chapter 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. What did they ask? They asked something more about divorce. Matthew tells us in our parallel passage in Matthew 19 that one of the questions they asked But Mark just gives us a response. So we can assume that they asked, well, what about remarriage? Because Jesus' response is, in Mark 10, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we know that that was their question. What about remarriage? In Matthew 19, the question is, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? The disciples were saying, if this is a permanent, unbreakable union, then isn't it better to just not get married at all? And Jesus went into a long discussion about people who don't get married and said, in some cases, it's better not to marry because you can serve the Lord as a single person. And the Apostle Paul did that. And he talked about that. He didn't command it ever. But he said, if you have the gift of being single, if you can stay single and serve the Lord, then you can go out, preach, be a missionary, travel. You can do all of these things with no family to worry about at home. You need to take care of your family. You need to love your wife. And if you can be single then that opens up some new ministry doors for you, for men and for women. And the Catholic Church took that as a command to priests and nuns and said, don't ever get married and just serve the Lord. That was never a command in Scripture. It was just an explanation of, if you're single, you can serve the Lord with a whole heart, and if you're married, you can serve the Lord. Peter was married. We have discussions here about his wife and his kids. Not in this chapter, but in other chapters. Most of the apostles, as far as we know, were married men. Is it okay for them, but not for us today? Scripture doesn't tell us that. It doesn't say you can't be married. It just says, here's an opportunity to serve as a single person. So in Jewish law, in the Pharisees' interpretations, in all of these discussions, it's all saying only a man can divorce his wife. The wife had no rights at all. But Roman law allowed for women to divorce their husbands. And that was now the law of the land. Jesus is speaking to the people about their law. Yes, the Old Testament law said this is permissible for sexual immorality, but it also said that being unfaithful, being adulterous, resulted in stoning. There was no question about divorce because if you were caught in adultery, you were stoned to death. There was no discussion about getting remarried after that because you're laying in a pile of rocks. That is no longer happening because the Romans have taken over and they said, we're not going to allow you to stone people. And that, if you remember, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a woman caught in adultery, and they said, should we kill her? Right? Remember that happening? So that is not under Roman law. 
And Roman law allows for women to divorce their husbands. So Jesus not only mentions a woman's right to divorce, but he makes it clear that the two sexes, male and female, are equal in marriage and equal before God. That's why he goes back to the Genesis passage and said, God created them male and female. And God presented to the man a mate, a helper, a person suitable, equipped, just right for him. This is after he names all of the animals and he sees Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe. I talked about this a couple months ago. And he said, where's my missus? There's no one like me. And God creates woman and says, here is the one who is just right for you. You're both equal in standing before me. However, I'm calling the husband to be the leader of the household. And I'm calling the wife to submit to his leading. Doesn't mean that one is less important than the other. Two different roles in marriage. So Jesus' response is basically saying, you can divorce your husband or your wife, but if you get married again, you are knowingly, willingly committing adultery. Again, this is not God saying, do this. As soon as your wife is unfaithful, if you hear that your husband has been unfaithful, divorce them immediately. He doesn't say you have to do that. He says you can. In the parallel passage in Matthew 19, Jesus adds a disclaimer that Mark didn't mention. In verse 9 of Matthew 19, Jesus said, And if I say to you, whoever, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus said, if divorce was on the grounds of sexual immorality, then remarriage of the divorced spouse is not adultery. The person who has left his wife for another woman, according to what Jesus says, should not go get married again because he walked out on the marriage. But the woman who's been walked out on, who's been left behind, can be remarried because she was not at fault. She was not the one engaging in adultery. She was not found in sexual immorality, and she could be married again. And again, thinking about biblical times specifically, a woman did not go find a job. A woman was married and taken care of by her husband's family, by his job, and by the things he did. So a woman to be left alone was in dire straits. That's why I believe God allowed for that remarriage. How many remember our Hosea sermon series called Relentless Love? Anybody? Anybody remember it? It wasn't that long ago. Through the book of Hosea and through God's prophet taking back his unfaithful wife, Homer, I'm sorry, Gomer, again and again, that's my typo in my message, Gomer, not Homer. God illustrated grace, forgiveness, and everlasting love, just as God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish. I believe that reconciliation in marriage 
should always be the goal before divorce. God showed us that example. And he told Hosea, take your wife back. Yes, even though she has been unfaithful, even though she divorced you and went to live with another, buy her back. And he showed us that beautiful picture of redemption, just as Christ bought our lives with his death on the cross. Buy your wife back. Bring her back. I'm showing you this illustration of how much I love you because I'm going to buy you back even though you turned your backs on me, even though you followed anything you wanted, you walked away from me in sin, I still love you and I want you back. So taking back your spouse who's been unfaithful is a picture of that reconciliation, a picture of that forgiveness. And God says, do that if you can. I also believe that some cases of unrepentant physical abuse would be grounds for divorce. When physical safety is an issue for the children, for the spouse, there should be an immediate separation. And if laws have been broken, the law should come into place. Jesus talked about that even in his day. But God's clear message is for people who are seeking to honor, to obey him, work on your marriage and avoid divorce. Work on it. Work things out. If there's any way that you can be reconciled, if you can forgive this person, if you can come back together again, then do that. And then as we wrap up the chapter, we have a children's example just quickly in verses 13 to 16. And I think this is here because it relates to family. We just talked about marriage and now we talk about children. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. People were bringing their children to Jesus so that he might touch them. If you remember on several instances, someone touching Jesus meant they were healed. This woman just touched the hem of his robe and she was healed. And Jesus said, it was your faith that healed you. It's not my robe that's magic. It's not my skin that heals people. It's your faith. So I think parents thought, well, if Jesus can heal people by touching them, if he hugs my child, then they're going to be great. Whatever's wrong with them will be healed. Imagine the Son of God touching my child. And it says the disciples were rebuking or chasing the parents and children away. And Jesus did not like that. Verse 14 says he was... Sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Back to Mark. Verse 14 of Mark says he was indignant. That means he was deeply moved. He was strongly disappointed by their actions. Jesus was angry. A lot of times we say there's only one case where Jesus was angry when he cast the sellers out of the temple and said, this is my father's house. Don't take advantage of people here. He got angry and he chased them, right? It says he hit them with a whip, knocked over their tables. He was physically angry. 
This word is that same kind of anger. He was indignant. He was ticked off. How could you stop children from coming to see me? Let them come to me. And if you remember just a few weeks back, Jesus picked up a child, possibly one of Peter's children. It was in his house. Set him on his lap, used him as an illustration and said, welcome new believers into the family just as you would welcome a child in your home. Moms and dads, the way you embrace your child, the way you love them, the way they come running to you, that's how you should treat new believers. Because the disciples were saying, well, these people are not real followers of us. They're not part of our in-group. And Jesus said, welcome them. If they're believers in me, welcome them. In this situation, Jesus is saying, coming to God, receiving his kingdom, is like a child. The only way in, the only way to salvation and eternal life. Being like a child. Not physically being a child. doesn't say that the only way you can be saved is to become a child because once you're grown up, you can't do that again. Commentator James Edwards said, A little child has absolutely nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he or she receives it by grace, on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are paradigm of disciples, for only empty hands can be filled. Jesus was saying the only way to come to God is humbly and recognizing your need for him, not your own self-value, not your own personal goodness. We don't come to God and say, God, you are so lucky to have me. I'm going to do great things for you. Let me in. You can't wait to have me on your team. That's not it. If you say that, you're not a child of God. You're just full of yourself. God says, humble yourself before me. Recognize your need for me. Recognize that you have a sinful heart and you have no way of fixing that yourself. You can't give enough money. You can't do enough good deeds. There's nothing you can do to merit my favor. The way you come to God is like a child with arms stretched out to your heavenly father. And you recognize that you need him. That's what being a child is like. Nothing to offer. A Gallup survey revealed that 19 out of 20 believers came to Christ before the age of 25. How many of you came to know Christ as your Savior before you were 25? Just raise your hands up high so everybody can look around. 95% before the age 25. Parents, grandparents, church family, Jake down in kids' church, that means that we need to clearly share the gospel with our children and call them to put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. If we think that the best way to serve them is let them figure it out themselves, it's throwing them to the wolves. Let them visit every church there is. Let them watch the news. Let them visit any other church, and just figure it out for themselves. It's their own decision, right? It is their decision to follow Jesus. 
But don't you want to share the truth with them instead of all of the lies? You have the truth. Make sure you're sharing it with your children. The reality of pure, humble faith of a child is an example for us all. And just like Jake was saying, how the kids know the Bible stories, they believe it. They believe it because they've heard it. And if the Holy Spirit has knocked on the door of their heart and invited them in, then they're on their way to heaven. And that's a blessing. We should be making sure we share it and let them grow up believing So some takeaways this morning. I'm leaving very little time for coffee. It's a hot day. You don't need coffee anyway, right? I still haven't had my cup of coffee, so. I did not cover all of the passages related to marriage and divorce this morning. I focused on the text in Mark and in that parallel passage in Matthew. There's more scripture references like 1 Corinthians 7 that teach about marriage Specifically about an unbeliever being married with a believer. And again, it talks about divorce. It says, don't dismiss your unbelieving spouse because they may become saved by your example. But if they present you with a certificate of divorce, let them go. They don't want to be with you if you're a believer. That may happen. So there are other passages. There's other things that relate to this topic like forgiveness like reconciliation, and so many more. If you or someone else has been hurt or affected by divorce, please show grace at all times. Show love. We come to Christ and our past is our past. God doesn't ask us to beat ourselves up every day. He says, you're forgiven. So whatever decisions you've made in the past, They're the past. The question is, today, what are you going to do? Are you going to commit to your marriage and follow him? As outsiders to divorce, we don't have all the facts. We take sides because we love this person, we love that person. And so many of you have been in the situation where your in-law is the person that you believe and you still love them. And it hurts you to see that relationship broken. Don't be quick to judge. Don't be quick to condemn. This is not in any way the unforgivable sin. Although some churches act that way. Have you come to God like a child? Have you recognized that you're helpless? That you're unable to save yourself And you're totally dependent on God's mercy, His grace. God calls us to repent of our sin, to accept Jesus' death and resurrection as payment for that sin, and to choose Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. If you're watching online, if you're here this morning, and you have never made that conscious decision to say, yes, I want Jesus to be in control. If you have always believed in God since you were little, That's different. Believing in God is believing that He exists. But God calls us to more than that. He calls us to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. He calls us to be forgiven of our sins, to repent of them, to be saved. That's more than just believing in God. 
Scripture actually says even the demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. They, they've seen him. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you been forgiven of your sins? If you haven't done that, if you're watching, if you're here today, come talk to me. If you're online, you can call the church office and talk to me on the phone. I would love to show you how you can know for sure that you're a son or daughter of the King. And that relationship is secure. It is forever. And that's why God is talking about that in relation to marriage. It's a relationship that's meant to not be broken. If you're already a child of God, when you're hurting, when you need help, do you go to God, your heavenly Father, and say, Abba, I need you. He cares, he listens, and he will never leave you. Is that the first place you go? If you're currently married, will you recommit to your wedding vows to love, cherish, and care for your spouse as long as you live? If you're sitting next to your spouse, grab their hand, look into their eyes, and say, I do. Say it loud enough for people to hear it. Cindy, I do. <laughs> I do forever and ever. Whatever it takes, we're going to make this work. And if that takes me saying, I was wrong, forgive me every day, twice a day, three times a day, that's what it's going to take. Be the first one to say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? If you're struggling in your marriage, get help. That's what we're here for as a church. We offer free biblical counseling to our church, to our community. Don't try to go it alone. Don't think that asking for help is failure. Failure is failure, right? Failure is letting your marriage fall apart. Come ask for help. If you've been divorced, consider the opportunities to serve God as a single person and say, what can I do? I don't have to be remarried. I can serve God in this place where I am. If you're planning on getting married or if you've recently been married, recognize that God's marriage plan is forever. Even though our culture has made it relatively easy to end your marriage, commit to a lifetime together if God calls you to be married. You have the opportunity, you have the blessing of demonstrating the mystery of God's love for his people, for his bride, in your response, in your obedience to him for the rest of your lives. And that's a beautiful picture. I can't call Mark up to close in song, so I'm just going to close in a prayer for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your clarity. Thank you for your teaching on marriage and divorce. Thank you, God, that you established marriage and that you gave us this beautiful picture of your everlasting love for us and our response in submission, obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, for everyone who's here this morning, for those that may be watching or listening online, that they would know that your love for them is eternal, that your desire 
is for reconciliation. Even for those who don't know you yet, that you offer forgiveness and that you offer love that lasts a lifetime. Lord, I pray for those who have been divorced, who have felt the effects of divorce through their marriage or through their families. Pray, Lord, your healing hand on their lives, on their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church family to love and not to be quick to judge. Lord, for the marriages that are here this morning, I pray your blessing that you would help us to forgive and forgive and forgive, to seek forgiveness, to grant forgiveness, to offer reconciliation, to continue to love for a lifetime, just as you've given us that example. May the God of endurance and encouragement through his Holy Spirit grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, his Son. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.